0: Hey, what's up, everybody? It's your boy, MJ, and I'm going to tell you about my number one secret when I shop for wine. The best strategy is to look at the back label and look for a trusted importer. And one of the most trusted names in wine for the past 30-plus years is Skernick Wines and Spirits. Since 1987, the Skernick brothers, Michael and Harmon, have scoured the earth looking to find super high-quality wines of distinction and then bring them back into the United States so that they can be available to you at your local store or restaurant. The company is headquartered right here in New York City, but they are also a direct wholesale distributor in eight states, including New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Kentucky, Indiana, and last but definitely not least, my beloved wine home of California. They also import many wines that are sold in all fifty states through their partner distributors. I recently interviewed Harmon Skernick right here on the Black Wine Guy podcast, and let me tell you, these guys are the real deal. If you want to learn more about Skernick Wines and Spirits, please have a look at their awesome website. It's www.skurnik.com. That's www.skurnik.com, Or you can even give them a call at 212 212- 273 W I N E. That's 212 273 WINE. Hey, I'm MJ Taller, also known as a black wine guy. I went from being a totally obsessed wine newbie to becoming the world's first ever African American fine and rare wine auctioneer in less than three years. In this show, I'll be talking to the mavericks, the philosophers, the players, and the deep thinkers who inhabit the world of wine they'll share their experiences on how they made it but more importantly how they failed and got back up again so grab a glass and let's get to it this is the black wine guy experience Hey, everybody, what's up? It's your boy, MJ, and welcome to the Black Wine Guy Experience. My guest today is highly acclaimed sommelier, restaurateur, and owner of Terroir Tribeca Wine Bar in New York City, Paul Greco. Uh, Originally from Canada, his family owned and operated Toronto's iconic La Tosca restaurant, which Paul worked at for many years alongside his father and grandfather. In 1991, he arrived on the shores of New York City and began his restaurant career, and by 1994, he was working at Gramercy Tavern. By 1997, he had taken over the wine list and the beverage program. In 2003, Paul and chef partner Marco Canora opened Hearth in the East Village. And help me again, Paul, with this. How do we say that? In CM followed in two thousand and seven uh, the duo 's first and second wine bars terroir opened in two thousand and eight and two thousand and ten and today uh, Paul runs terroir Tribeca, which has been described as a much needed outpost for wine lovers to experience terroir driven wines as much as they are a platform for Paul to preach the attributes of his carefully created wine lists. Welcome, Paul. It's a pleasure to be here, sir. Oh, man, so glad you're here. Anything else you'd like to add? <laughs> <laughs> it's a good start. It's okay. a good start. Okay, okay, okay. So um, tell us what wine we're drinking this afternoon,
1: Paul. We, uh, because it is the summer, and during the summer, as it is uh, certainly the other three seasons of the year, we tend towards the Riesling grape, and today we have a Riesling from the homeland of the grape and the wine, Germany. We are in the Mosel River Valley. Melsheimer is the producer. The bottling is called Lentum, L-E-N-T-U-M, vintage 2013. And while we are going to enjoy this together today, MJ, is because this is an origin story wine. This is a historical wine, while relatively new vintage-wise mm-hmm. this is how riesling used to be okay. 120 years ago when the grapes were harvested wine was grapes were put into barrel fermentation started and then it just went its merry goddamn way this belief hackneyed dare i say that all rieslings were always sweet all the time mm. is utter bs i because love it. at the turn of the 20th century the vast majority were dry we all know the process of harvest, ferment, blah, blah, blah. There were no market pressures to get that wine to the marketplace to start making money within six to 12 months of the harvest. Can we toast each other? Well, God sure. damn cheers. it. Big cheers, dude. Thank you, man. Bonnie, big cheers. Um, clink over here. Come on. Do it, do it with <laughs> me. Do it with me.
0: Hers didn't clink because she gets the, the sippy cup, but that's okay. <laughs> and so
1: because there were no market pressures, wine just sat in barrel fermented during the warmer months and then during the colder months it stopped and then it restarted again and maybe three four or five years after the fact they started to sell it and by then it had fermented dry so this this wine mimics that they just left it in goddamn barrel and just let it do its thing is there residual sugar here of course there is so goddamn minimal you can't really detect it this is german riesling At its finest, we need people to understand that you can't go home, take out your big goddamn broom, and sweep the entire world of Riesling into a corner as being this. Right. It ain't this. Right. It's a lot of this and that and other. And I think this wine helps to paint that picture.
0: Well, this is certainly uh, bone dry. Um, The color is amazing. I mean, it's eight years old crisp um so we're gonna get we you know we have a lot to get into you know we have the summer of riesling uh going on we're gonna get into that but um i actually need to set the stage for for people who may not know who you are um you've been described as a uh, Somali punk or a punk Somalia. um and the bayou said said that you have been influenced by villains and heathens and revolutionaries and indigenous peoples so everybody you saw how he came in and just schooled us <laughs> about the truth about Riesling right out the gate. So he's not your everyday psalm, which is awesome. Um, and I think when you said like like with brooms at Riesling, like there's a whole image of what a sommelier is because of movies in recent years that that have been good for – I think everything that have been good for the business but also a lot of people – have this one idea what that means you know what i mean so um so let's let's get into let's go let's go way back let's go back to the good old days let's talk about um you're from canada yes sir okay and um what was it like growing up so i the research the research my producer said you were one of four kids so, and and you're in... Uh, Damn, that information uh, doesn't get out there. Where the I, hell did you find that? I, I say, listen, man. So I, so we get, this is a legit podcast. <laughs> That's why we're in a studio. I didn't say, hey, well, I'll get you on Zoom. <laughs> um, so, what was it like growing up with with a uh, a family in Canada? What was it like growing up in Canada? Like, were you exposed to wine? Um, what was
1: no, it- listen, it, uh, I think it was like many other kids growing up. Toronto was cool. Family was cool. It was a a family business. Our restaurant uh, had opened in 1962, arguably Canada's first formal Italian restaurant. My grandfather opened it. My father was there on the first day. My earliest memories of youth um, with my dad were going to work with him on a Saturday and doing menial work on the floor. Polishing silver, polishing glassware, straightening out tables, vacuuming, doing things like that, and a lesson—I don't think my father intended—but certainly sunk in with me about being a restaurant manager. And I and I will—I I am honored that you consider me a psalm. But when I think of a title for myself, I am first and foremost a restaurant tour. Love it. I have okay. found my ken i guess is the word to be wine but i love the totality of this industry and all wine people should remember that we are but one part of a much bigger industry and it's not just about us we ain't rock stars we're one if we if we have any acclaim it's spread through everyone else in the uh, the restaurant so i learned early on that doing mundane shit repetitively, the same goddamn way, is a key to success in this business. And I started doing that as a four-year-old. Right. And um, I – like any teenager, you rebel against family. I didn't want to get in the goddamn business. But I was asked to leave the University of Toronto because let's just say that I practiced too much hospitality at the University of Toronto. And my father grabbed me by the (laughs) scruff of the neck and said, you're coming to work at the restaurant. I initially – Um, I pushed back, but I had no choice uh, because he was paying my apartment bills, my monthly rent. And after being there for a few months, uh, he said, I'm sending you to Italy for 28 days. And as a 20 year old, I was scared shitless and took me a little while to say, this is going to be awesome. But I went there in ignoramus in wine and food terms. And I returned 28 days later. I was a relative genius, at least compared to the vast majority of the staff at my family's restaurant. And what had happened, MJ, during that time was that I fell in love. Mm -hmm. And I realized on that trip that everything I loved, that I didn't study for at Mm -hmm, university, mm -hmm. and I'm one of those individuals who probably should never have gone to university because I wasn't ready. Mm -hmm. But I realized that history, culture, civilization, philosophy, religion, people, places, blah, 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 all incorporated in the world of wine. So when I got back home, it's like, okay, restaurants, here I come, and wine specifically is going to be the avenue that I can seize to exercise all of these loves that I have. At the same time, I feel blessed that I spent my, um, not my influential years, but the years that influenced me the most mm-hmm. were the early to mid 80s. And I got into the British new wave music scene. And to my friends who all wanted classic American rock and roll, I said, no goddamn way. I wanted all the new shit that was coming into Canada at that time, be it Echo and the Bunnymen, Simple Minds, The Mode, da, 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 morphed into other scenes, but I was viewed by my mates as sort of an outcast, a pariah. And I took that mentality into the world of wine. Mm -hmm. So if we're going to... When we get to the conversation of Riesling, MJ, please do not think that I have ever uttered the phrase Riesling is the greatest grape, the greatest wine. (laughs) I have never uttered that. I love the world of wine and I just happen to glam onto those things that I believe do not get enough respect. Right, I got it. And then I take it upon myself to push those stories forward, be it music or art or history or blah, 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 or in the case of what we're enjoying together today, Riesling. Yep.
0: Yep. I love that. I love it. So something you said really early in the conversation, and I, I, I've been reiterating this, Almost since the outset, since the first episode, because one, you said, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, your your title if it would be anything would be restaurateur, not Somali, and um, like the uh, educational industrial complex where you pay money and you get a piece of paper that's supposed to say that you know a certain thing has happened, and so we see so many people. I, I like what you said, like you fell in love with. Food and wine in, in the world. Um, whereas a lot of people are pursuing degrees like their WSATs, and there's no, nothing wrong with that. But I would say you hit the nail on the head when you said repetition of mundane things is is becomes the key, you know? Um you look at I remember seeing a documentary about the Eagles, Eagles, and and Glenn Fry was like, that's how you that how that's how life works. Uh Hard work, commitment, repetition, dedication, right? So I think that needs to be said because there's so many people who want to be in this business and this business is a beautiful business, hospitality, restaurant, you know, and, and wine. But you really got to love it and you got to live it. So I, there was, I, I heard a lot of that in what you said and how yeah,
1: it felt. Listen, I, I love every aspect of this business and some of this stuff ain't pretty. But when the doors open and the first guest walks in, let's backtrack. When you arrive at work in the morning before your first staff member walks into the joint, certain things must be done and someone has to do the goddamn shit. And as an owner, operator, GM, blah, blah, blah. Overlord. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) It it generally will fall upon you. And I'm happy to do those things. I still love today. Walking through my restaurant before the first guest walks in and making sure the stools are all lined up, that all the tables are lined up, that there's symmetry going on on the restaurant floor. When we mark the table, when we mise the table for food, for drink, that everything has a certain place. And I look in the mirror sometimes and think, you're a fucking fool, goddammit. You've been doing this for over 30 odd years. Why are you still fixated upon this shit? Because this stuff still matters. And I feel truly lucky that early on, somehow it got ingrained in mm-hmm. my DNA. Mm-hmm. Listen, I would love to say every day is a new journey and I can walk this screen, <laughs> blah, blah, blah. Someone still, right. still has to unlock the front door and turn on the lights. Mm. And then And only then after that is all done, MJ, do we get
0: to do the fun shit. Right, 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 right. (laughs) So um, let's go back a little bit to uh, your dad said you're grounded. You're going to Italy for 28 days. (laughs) Um, What regions did you tour during that I'm sure you've probably been back, but uh, what regions have you? What regions did you go through uh, during that first trip, and and what was most memorable to you? It it was an extraordinary time. I've been in this industry. Well,
1: forget the fact that I was born into it. I've been actively in it since 1987. So I went to Italy: two weeks Tuscany, week Piedmont, week mm-hmm. Veneto. Okay. And our family restaurant was such that we had some connections. So when I went to Tuscany, I got to stay with the Antonoris for a few days. When I went to Piedmont. I got to stay with Angelo Gaia for a few days. And so there was – Italian wine at that time was very much on the way up. Not as accepted as it is now, but it was – and you were still able to interact with important wine people, restaurateurs, that I'm not so sure Angelo Gaia would allow me across his threshold today, but back then, I got to crash with him for a week. And I remember – Arrived on a Saturday, had dinner with he and his wife. The next day I get up and wanted to, you know, see if the Catholic faith still intrigued me. Went to the church in in Barbaresco and I told him that. And he said, okay, Paul, when church is finished, come back and we're going to have some lunch and there's going to be a guest here. I hope you don't mind. And so I come in, I walk in, Angelo, hey, how are you? And he's like, Paul, I want to introduce you to Burton Anderson. I'm like, motherfucker. Like- <laughs> Are you kidding? Burton Anderson, like the dude who wrote The Wine Atlas of Italy, the most important <laughs> Italian wine writer of that time. Yeah. Here is this punk 20-year-old kid who does not deserve to be sitting down with Angelo Gaia and I get to have lunch and break bread with Angelo Gaia and Burton Anderson. Same thing happened on my first trip to Italy or uh, to Germany. I get to go visit the Breuer Winery um, and I'm there. And they say, Paul, during your visit, a journalist is going to show up. Hope you don't mind. I'm like, cool, like, please. And so, journalist shows up, and who the hell is it? Stuart Piggott. My my Life Beyond Leap for Milk, my first German wine book that I bought in the 1980s. So I, you know, luck if we talk about how Mm -hmm. you go through this life. I think great decision making is important to success. And I've been lucky to have made some decisions that turned out to be great. And I've been very lucky to find myself in situations where I've been able to meet people, then meet people, blah, blah, blah. And
0: lo and behold... It's all fucking awesome, dude. Yeah, wow, wow. Um, so, you you also said like your your family had like really like kind of like the first Italian restaurant, first formal, formal. Italian okay. restaurant, as I understand it. Okay. Um, so. You come back from italy what do you you know and what do you start doing the restaurant like where you did you did you do everything did you work on the line did you cook i mean what did you the great do? thing about family businesses
1: is for uh five years of my life i got to work side by side with my grandfather my grandmother my mom my dad i can't uh, my god joyful yeah. and hard as shit family businesses are hard by the way you have a five second delay on this recording so you're going to bleep everything i bloody well say here right oh hell cool? no okay good so Um what I found intriguing, and if I was a smarter individual I would have known this, that every day my father and I clashed. Okay. And every day my grandfather and I bonded. Mm. And Mm. I I wanted to change shit. This restaurant by the time I arrived there and was managing blah blah blah, twenty five years of age. And it was old. It was historic. AKA stodgy, old, mm-hmm. all the customers, none of their kids were coming, the uh, The age of our clientele was getting older and older. And I'm like, what the fuck is going on here? The world of restaurants was vitally changing in the mid to late 80s, mm-hmm. especially in the Italian restaurant world. And ours, my father was like, we're not changing. La Scala is La Scala. And I would take everything that we did, be it small or large, and sit down at lunch with him and beg him to allow me to change something. And finally, my mother sat me down one day and said, you know what, Paul? You see me, you complain about your father. Your father comes home from work and he complains about you. I'm not playing the referee. <laughs> and if I have to choose between the two of you, I'm choosing your father. Right. <laughs> and you know, rightly so. And that's like old school. Uh, that's what yeah. my mom's like. Yeah." And you so know. I was like, well, my future is not here at La Scala. And my father was such that his reputation um, was important enough in Toronto. I felt that I would embarrass him if I moved to another restaurant. Okay. So it was like, New York, here we come. Arrived in 91 and uh, was supposed to be for three months. And here we are 31 years later, rock and roll, dude. I know, and now it's 2021. <laughs> do you like serendipity? I do love serendipity. I love serendipity. And I used to thought it was one of those things that was just <laughs> serendipitous. It just right. fucking happened. And it's only in the last few years that I learned that it can be an active verb, that you can make serendipity yep. happen. So yep. I, I think without knowing that word... I move in those directions sometimes. So the years working in Toronto with my family, we would come to the States for restaurant conventions. And I happened to meet a lot of important restaurateurs: Lydia Bastianich of Felidia, Piero Salvaggio of Valentino LA on that group of important Mm -hmm. Italian restaurateurs. Mm -hmm. So when I came to New York, Mm -hmm. I already had an in with some of these Mm -hmm. people and was able to start working on
0: day one. Yeah, yeah. Um, Why do you... I love... You said you know you, you every day you clash with your father and then bond with your grandfather. Do you do you think was it your grandfather? Um, maybe was it because he was so wise and advanced in years that like he could see, like he could see your ideas. Because he had clashed with your dad, like was it was that type of thing? Was it generational, where like it's just the father and the son clash, or like what do you think? I, of that? I, I am not smart enough to say that every child clashes with the
1: parent. And you find with your grandparents when the skipping the generation thing, where you find some acceptance. When my grandfather opened La Scala in '62, he was fifty years of age, wow. and at that point, to be fifty years old and begin a brand new career was insane. Yeah, yeah, and so. He, I think, might have been like me in terms of new adventures, pushing the envelope, doing what you shouldn't be doing. And he and I gravitated towards each other. And I think he certainly recognized that if this was going to be a family tradition, Mm -hmm. we needed to change. And the conservatism that he saw in his son, which is perfectly fine, um, was not for the best future of the joint. Listen. My father, smartest man, I've, smartest individual I've ever known. Mm-hmm. Um, but we just
0: couldn't work together. Yeah, yeah. So <clears throat> you arrive on the shores of New York. Like you said, you'd you'd have made some contacts. Um, what was your first? Um, What was your first restaurant gig in New York
1: City? I worked at Remy Restaurant. Okay. On 53rd, between 6th and 7th, got to work. uh, The chef was Francesco Antonucci. Adam Tahani was the owner-designer. Chris Cannon was the GM. An extraordinary... Chris, one of the greatest restaurant people I've ever met, can do it all, every which way. And that restaurant at that time... Uh, was how, I don't know, some Italian restaurant mafia was named one of the top Italian restaurants in the country. And in terms of business, mm-hmm. I went from old school, stodgy, 50 covers a night to doing 220 lunches, 400 dinners. It was the polar opposite of my Toronto life And boy, I needed that kick in the nutsack to show me what this restaurant world could be all about. So I was there for
0: two and some odd years. Okay. Okay. And... After working at that restaurant, was what was what was was Gramercy actually next? What was next? No, okay. I went to Boulay.
1: Okay, you went Boulay. Okay. The greatest and worst twenty-eight days of my entire oh, oh my fucking life. <laughs> okay, so <laughs> it was the original Boulay, okay. and it was, as far as I know, the only restaurant in when the Zagat survey was a thing uh, that was the best restaurant and the most popular restaurant. Okay, and so maybe I went in there with my muscles a little bit too flexed, and uh, the GM. Uh, At that time, uh, decided to, you know, treat it like the military and wanted to break me down. And boy, oh boy, it worked. Went into the emergency room in the hospital having had a panic attack. It was those 28 days still today are palpable for me. And nothing influences how I do what I do other than those 28 days at Boulay. Even more than the seven years at Gramercy Tavern with Danny Meyer. Uh Uh-huh. The way that restaurant was run, you got to be fucking kidding me, man. Anyway, so I went from play. Wait, wait,
0: wait. I was like, but isn't it, there's a movie Twenty Eight Days? Right? Like we need to we need to write a Twenty Eight Days movie about the restaurant business. Like the hell you went through. Like it sounds like a horror movie. Like literally. Like well, the people who were there at that time were.
1: Uh, I, I think they had empathy and sympathy for me, but they also felt that I was an idiot for acting the way I did and I deserved a kick in the nutsack. And, okay. and they, all of the people there Jean Luc Ledoux was there at that time, Ned Benedict, uh, Kurt Gutenbrunner, like incredible mm-hmm. people who went on to do other stuff. Yep, yep. Is that I needed a little bit of a come down. And God knows I got it, as unfair as it might have been. Yeah. But uh, I went from there to Gotham Bar and Grill for a little bit. Uh, I went to Gabriel's, went to Judson Grill, where I got to hook up with Chris Cannon again. And then in January of 95, I started at Gramercy Tavern. All right. So
0: let's uh, talk about Gramercy Tavern, the Tavern of Gramercy.
1: Listen, if I hadn't left in uh, the early O's to open my own joint, I'd still be there. Greatest goddamn restaurant ever. And the team that was there in the late 90s, early O's. Between Tom Calicchio, Claudia Fleming, Nick Matone is the GM, the, the the back servers, the food runner, the fronts, the captains, the cooks, the whole thing. It was Hall of Fame type material. Again, I somehow made the right decision to go there and stayed and was offered this position of not just beverage director, but service director okay. and AGM. So talk about flexing one's muscles at that place. And the great thing about Danny, and there are many, is that he gave us all the freedom to do what we wanted to do all in the name of have you taken care of everyone in this restaurant staff wise? Have you taken care of everyone in this restaurant guest wise? Have you taken care of the community, the purveyors, the bottom line, rock and roll, do whatever the fuck you want. And okay. Whether that was the stated fact, right. that's how I interpret it. Right. And it, that freedom to be in a work environment where you get to do whatever you want to do, holy smogolies. And I, my name wasn't on the goddamn check. My name wasn't above the door. And I still felt that way as I believe everyone else at that joint
0: did at that time. It was so unbelievable to me. I think that's interesting. So many, so, well, I've worked with people personally, not even in, in restaurant business, but like sometimes you work with someone who, um, it just, they have no faith in their people. They're not for their people. Um, and you can have an oppressive work environment. This sounds like the complete opposite. It was like, I like what you said, like, you, uh, I don't think you actually, well, you probably, you did have a checklist, but there was a checklist of this, this happened, this happened, this happened. Okay, now I'm just free to be Paul, right? Was that kind of like the sense? You-
1: yeah. Listen, MJ, we, we know that from the moment you arrive in the morning to the, the minute before the doors open, there's a lot of work, yeah. the mise en plus that you need to do to get the joint ready. But if you do it well, the second the door opens and the first guest walks in, that should be fun time, God damn it. The fact that someone is willing to cross our threshold and interact with us, allow us to serve them food and drink, blah, blah, blah. That, I'm honored Mm. by that. Mm. So we did a lot of work during the day to get ready for that first guest to walk in. And when they did, it was like party time, man. At least that's the attitude I took to the adventure then, the interactions then. And I still maintain that today. I am truly honored, dude, that you, with all the restaurants in this city, that you could go and enjoy food and drink, that you choose to come to my humble little joint, I am so fucking proud and honored. And I want to relish that moment with you. Yeah. Even in these these post-COVID days, we need that shit. Yeah. But pre- at all times, and right. that's the way it was. And listen, if you would allow me to jump ahead okay. to the industry now, yeah. which you just encapsulated about that Danny world and the, the oppressive nature yeah. of the workplace, yeah, yeah. that's why our industry is so fucked right now. Mm-hmm. Because too many of us ran businesses where the first thing we focused on was the guest. And we didn't focus on our people. Mm -hmm. And because we thought, all bets are off. You must do everything you can for your guest. And we didn't take care of each other. And that's why today so many people have left the industry or don't want to come back Mm -hmm. and
0: work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, that's a huge thing. And
1: I don't know how. We're going to overcome that, but God damn it, we need to figure out a way. And I think the way that Danny Meyer has done it over all of these years, and I sometimes feel that people don't think, there's no way he's real. Like <laughs> all the shit that you've heard about, there's no way someone, and you know what? Having worked for him back then, it's the real deal. It's insane.
0: Mm, mm, that's awesome. That's awesome. Um, yeah, we'll go talk more about that. But thanks for f- jumping ahead. Um, cause now you gave me some more questions to ask you and like, when we get there and wherever there is. Um, so what was it like, you had, uh, you had multiple responsibilities. What was it like, how did you begin to craft that wine program and, and your image or like, what was your vision when you began crafting the wine?
1: Well, I'll, I'll, this is my, I, I never think in a straight line, unfortunately. So okay. I'll jump to the, the, end, <laughs> the end and then I'll go back to the beginning. When I gave my notice at Gramercy, I asked Danny for some advice and he said, well, two pieces. One, uh, make sure your joint is fully capitalized before you do anything. Okay, cool. And two, begin with a kernel of an idea of what you want your place to be, and then every single thing you do in that joint, make sure it can be tied back to that kernel of an idea. So in the case of Gramercy Tavern, it was, well, what's a modern American tavern? And in answering that question, the choices that Danny Meyer, Tom Colicchio, Larry Goldenberg, the partners made from architecture to design to food to wine to service, was all tied back to that kernel of an idea. So... The opening beverage director was a gentleman by the name of Steve Olson. All I did when I ran that program for five years was just carry on what Steve Olson started in 1994. Okay. And there, I think there were two beverage directors between Stephen and myself, but that's all I did. So, it wasn't as if I came, took over the program in the spring of 97 and Danny sat me down and said, Paul, I want you to move things in this direction. No. hmm Just continue to do what they did. And then I got to add a little, dare I say it, Paul Greco spice on top. It was a great time for the the rise of Austrian and German wine. Or let's say the rise of Austrian wine, the renaissance of German wine. And because I was fascinated with those things that don't get proper respect – I moved in that direction. Danny Meyer might say a little bit too heavily, but, um, you know, I could do whatever I wanted there and I fucking did it.
0: So I love that. I love that. So what were some of those wines that you, that were emerging? Obviously, I think, what year was this? What year was this again? 97 97. Okay. So like. Aldo had come over and started talking about Gruner and stuff like Gruner was coming on the scene, so like what were some of the things you were you were you were most fond of pouring back then, like that you were exposing people to in the realm of wines that are not getting the respect they deserve.
1: I'm not smart enough to remember the specifics of the thing, but it was about moving people. Let, let's say, MJ, at the time, Italy, which was certainly very much on the rise and yep. then Tuscany had achieved it. Barolo and Bar- Barbaresco had arrived as commonplace names. Veneto was following up quickly. It was exploring the other 17 regions of the country. It mm. was about a lot more wines from Campania and Sicily. It was about going to Spain and moving away from Rioja and the Penedes. It was going to the northwestern part of the country. Let's agree, maybe, that Alberino was the grape of the 1980s, with Gruner being the grape of the 1990s, psalm wise at least. Yeah. But then it was Menthea, yeah. holy smogolies. Yeah. It was really digging deep into Austria, not just Gruner, mm-hmm. but getting Frankish, Saint-Laurent, Zweigelt on your list. Mm. It was going to South Africa. It was going to Australia, um, parts of Eastern Europe slovenia at that time on and on and on went so there is no one wine Mm -hmm. or grape if there is a through line i guess in my career if you were to ask me the one question or the question of so paul you get one wine for that desert island last meal what's it going to be shadow musar Lebanon. I think there was a period mm. of time where you knew it was a psalm wine list where someone was really driven to go off the edge if they put a Lebanese wine on the list. And for me Like I knew of Moussar from Canada because the LCBO was Catholic in its buying; It bought from everywhere. Mm -hmm. So these things weren't foreign to me. Mm -hmm. So putting Moussar on the list might be a thing that would have shocked people and might have said, oh, well, that's a Paul Greco wine list.
0: Oh, wow. Woo. Moussar. I think you need another sip, dude. I do need another sip. I'm going to pour some little tasty taste here. So – after all this that has happened, uh, and you said it mentioned a few minutes ago, um, how did you leave Gramercy? I mean, you, obviously you said you asked Danny for some advice, but what was what was the the prompt that you're like, you know, it's time to uh, be it, like Joe Jackson and stepping out? <laughs> it it wasn't
1: necessarily an age thing. Mm-hmm. It uh, I had I was just married, um, but I felt it. Internally, that I had gone through peaks and valleys through my time at Gramercy Tavern of wanting to leave the business, wanting to be a rock star, getting back in the business, becoming a GM, saying, well, is it, you know, are you going to be a restaurant owner? And I say this ever so hesitantly, but holy smogolies, my first job in the business was as an owner. Family business. Oh, yeah. I'm one of the yeah. generation. So yeah. And that's sort of insane. So it's I was coming back around. But I went through a lot of years of thinking, no, I'm not going to do this. But it was just a realization that I have to do my own thing. So with that in mind, I gave notice and it was the right time for me to leave.
0: All right. Well, listen, um, guys, (laughs) I need like three hours to talk to you. But we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. And then we're going to get into – uh, post Gramercy Tavern with my guests, Paul Greco. Hey, hey, what's up? It's MJ again. Listen, we all love a sexy wine label, but the back label is more important. Do you want to know how to score a great bottle of wine every time? Turn that bottle around and look for the Skernik Wines logo. Skernik Wines has been one of my favorite portfolios since I came into the business over 20 years ago. Whether it's a $10 bottle or a $100 bottle, you can count on skernik Wines to deliver every time. And it's not just about wine. They also have one of the finest portfolios of craft spirits. Make sure you go to their website, www.skernik.com and check out their ever-evolving library of cocktail recipes. Listen, I don't say this lightly. Skernik is a name you can trust when it comes to wine and spirits. Okay, we're back. All right, so... Let's talk about opening Terroir in 2008. Like you said earlier in the conversation, like start with an idea. What was the idea that led to Terroir?
1: Well, while I will accept and recognize and be honored by the fact people think of me as a wine person, I'm a restaurateur first and foremost. So I had no desire to ever open up a wine bar. Okay. Uh, Marco and I were at Hearth on the corner of First Avenue and 12th Street. We'd been there for four or five years by this point and all of a sudden knock on the door we open it to the landlord from down the street saying, hey, I've got this place. Might you guys be interested in taking it over? You seem relatively successful. We looked at the place. It's on 12th Street between 1st and A, mid-block. And we walked. We looked. We said, Way, well, it's way too big. Just, you know what? If it was a third the size, we might consider it because we were involved in midtown Manhattan at that mm-hmm. time within CMA and didn't think we could do more than one additional project. And so we walked away thinking nothing would ever come of it. A few months later, knock on the door. Landlord. He's like, I did it. And we're like, what? Who are you and what did you do? And he's like, I'm giving you a third of the space. And so we walked back in and said, holy shit. Okay, now what do we do? And it was roughly 100 feet away from hearth. We're like, okay, 550 square feet all in. All in including a handicapped bathroom, kitchen, back bar. So this is like a fucking sandbox, man. Like this... We're going to spend some money because we have to renovate this thing, but this should be a no-brainer. Well, what are we going to do? Well, when Marco Canora, we, he and I worked together at Gramercy Tavern. He was a sous chef, and then he left to open up Kraft with Tom Colicchio in 2001. Okay. And when Tom and Marco opened up Kraft Bar, uh, the f- menu was a lot of Marco's dishes for Marco's family. You know, small bites, nibbles, things like that, dare I say, perfect for a wine bar. So, okay, food-wise, let's do Marco's wine bar food that he had done previously. And, you know, hearth, big cellar, let's just move it down the street and have some fun. And so the thinking about the joint uh, was the third partner, a gentleman by the name of Stephen Solomon. If you ever look at the terroir wine list, there's a lot of graphics on there and they're all done by Stephen Solomon. Okay. And the way I describe our relationship is that I fill the pot with water. I then put the pot of water on the stovetop and I turn the gas on and Stephen Solomon walks by and turns it up to 11. (laughs) So... (laughs) While Marco did the food, he sort of cut out at that point in time. And then it was Steven and I, lots of late nights over multiple bottles of wine, thinking about this joint. And we got fixated upon the idea of the sandbox. And without being viewed as an arrogant dick, it was along the lines of our sandbox, one of the cool places to be as a kid. And in our sandbox, it was our friends, our toys, our rules. The original rent was $2,000 a month. And just looking at the size of the space, we knew you could have no more than three employees. So we knew the labor cost was going to low. So when you think about the business of a restaurant, your three big cost items on your P&L are going to be cost of goods, labor, and occupancy. And we knew two of the three were going to be very doable. So it was like the freeing signal of, holy shit, you can do whatever you want. And so at that point in time, I jumped into the wine part of things and said, Paul, wine-wise, you can do anything. Like you can have a big by-the-glass program. And if you ever thought that you could never put six different Nebbiolo by the glass to show the entirety of Piedmont, then in the past you could only do one Barolo because you only had nine other spaces for red wines by the glass. Yeah. Well, now fucking do it all. And the same thing happened in my conversation in my brain about Riesling, that up until that point in time, if you had asked any wine person, Psalm, by the way, you can shut me up at any point in time nah, if you man. so desire. Dude, that you're rolling. You know. <laughs> <not> gonna... So <laughs> what's your favorite grape, your favorite wine? Right. Top three would include Riesling for every single wine person. Yeah. And then being the contrarian ass that I am, I might say, so what are you doing about it? And they say, well, you know, I pour a Riesling by the glass. Like, that's it. So your favorite <laughs> fucking grape wine, you're only pouring, pouring one. one by the and glass. then I'd look at your wine list and it would be, oh yeah, Pinot Noir is your other grape. And you have tens, hundreds of bottles, deep dive into Burgundy, and you would have maybe five wines from Germany. Like, really? So, But again, to each his own. Right. So I decided and we opened up in the spring of 08 mm-hmm. they're like well i have to put my money where my mouth is so to speak and said okay this coming summer we're only going to pour riesling as our white wine so this is in
0: 2008 2008 dude. so and we're going to but so 2008 was like that was the uh, genesis of summer of riesling i take it yes okay um, how was that received hated it
1: <laughs> My, well listen the thing, think about if you were a server at terroir um first of all you would guess would walk and say yeah i'd like a glass of sauvignon Blanc, please sorry we have no sauvignon Blanc. okay well that's odd i'll have a glass of chardonnay please no sorry no chardonnay by the glass well that's really fucking odd because it's only the most popular white grape on the planet okay i guess i'll have to have a pinot grigio that no sorry no pinot grigio like what the Fuck <laughs> Well what do you have? And they would say Riesling. What else do you have? Only Riesling. So my staff hated it. Okay. My partner hated it because his food was Italian centric. It wasn't he did not think that it could work with Riesling. Um, I can't say the investors hated it because we didn't lose money. We made enough money to pay the blah, blah, right, blah. Right. So we got through that and and I move in a straight fucking line and I am very dogmatic about this shit. So you could say, well, Paul's summer of Riesling, it was really just July and August, right? right? No. It begins on the first day of summer and it ends on the last day of summer, 94 <laughs> goddamn days, period, deal. And so we survived it, let's say. Year one. And then we get to two thousand nine. My staff looks at me in the spring and said, Paul, you're not going to do that summer of Riesling thing, are you again? Because that really sucked. And that's all I needed to say. Oh yeah, we're gonna do that shit again. <laughs> and we're going deep. So it was and then to jump ahead to the second terroir, which was Tribeca, Yeah. when we opened that in April of two thousand ten. Well, summer of Riesling that year. And all of a sudden the press began to say, wait a second. There are two places doing the summer of Riesling. This must be something. So while it started in 08 and it was shits and giggles at a 550 square foot place in the East Village of New York, it sort of grew as we got more terroirs plus, plus, plus. But again, and I emphasize this. We did not do the summer of Riesling to say Riesling is the greatest grape. Riesling is the greatest wine. We did not ever say that. Other people can say that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. We just wanted it to get its rightful place on the pantheon of great wines, a place that it occupied decades before, and then for a shit ton of reasons, lost it. So...
0: I love this. So um, you're, you know, in the beginning, I said, like, you're like this, you know, uh, punk psalm. You're like, yeah, like you're super intelligent, incredibly humble. I love that. Um, but like I, I just this week, like my last guest, um, I don't know if you have you met Michael Juergens yet. I have not. OK, well, he's. um uh, he's 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 insane uh he's an nw candidate but he's also a partner at deloitte and he's written books on wine and 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 he literally he said like if there's one person in the wine business i fanboy over it's paul greco <laughs> and then another guest of mine on chef westcott he was in the city for uh his birthday this weekend he's a chef in uh western mass and he's like, yo, MJ, what's going on? You know, it's like, oh, I got Paul Greb coming. He's like, he's like, dude, he's like, dude, that's my dude. Like, like you, you, you have this, like, you have this status, like, underground, like, legend status, like, of which I think is freaking awesome. Um, so, what were you most proud of about out of that, like, little five hundred fifty square foot place? The fact that we could do whatever, whatever the fuck we you want <laughs> wanted.
1: Like, and, I, and I mean that in all seriousness. And Dan, this was not a, a send-off from Danny to me. It was a statement uh, that I can't remember what question prompted it, but it was about our industry. That it is really rare to be a restaurateur because you get to be everything. What's everything? Well, you get to be in your own joint the architect, the interior designer, the florist, the cook, the wine person, the beer person, the spirits person, the service person, the hospitality person, the florist, just keep good, the musicologist, blah. All of these different disciplines, MJ, you get to exercise with your in your own four walls. Name me another industry where you get to have your toes in that many different ponds so i'm not you know if some people thought of the original terroir east village as a clubhouse we never thought like open the door everyone is fucking welcome here we did insane shit we had sherry happy hour where between 4 and and 6 p.m you could come in and get a free glass of fucking sherry every goddamn day in fact you could have multiple glasses of sherry because it's another beverage that doesn't get the respect so listen so you would think Holy smogolies, Paul, you're giving away free alcohol in New York City. You must have had a line out that door every goddamn day. You know what, MJ? When people say that I couldn't even give sherry away for free, (laughs) you know what? (laughs) I can fucking say that. So we, you know, summer of Riesling was but one thing we did in that place wine-wise. And I've been in it. Uh, in the industry long enough, in New York City long enough to see the rise and let's say fall of the psalm. Late 90s, we saw the rise of the psalm, and then we had an economic up, um, downturn and then we saw psalms being the first people let go or psalms having to do other responsibilities. Mm-hmm. And then the O's, you saw the rise of the psalm once again. And then we get to 08, 09, and you see so blah, blah, blah. So I've been through all of that and been able to ride those waves and I love my community and I really wanted terroir to be a place where we could gather and just have fucking fun that I knew how hard this business is and I wanted a place where we could come and just let loose at the same time welcoming in everyone who wanted to come and join us. Did you ever watch Love Boat when you were a kid? Of course. Okay. So, when asked, what, how do I view my role? What is my role? I'm Julie on the love boat. Oh, what was she, your cruise director? Yes. I want to be cruise director. I want to see everyone in my joint with a bloody smile on their face. So, I walk around the place doing whatever the hell I need to do to get a smile on everyone's face. I want it to be truly a party every goddamn night. So... MJ, when you come to terroir and sit down, there are three things that must happen. And hopefully in this order, you will open up the wine list and you will chuckle. You're going to open up the wine list, you will chuckle, and then you will learn some shit about wine. And then after you chuckle and you learn a little shit, you're going to order some shit. That's my measure of success on a daily basis. Basis at that joint, and I work my ass off, as does our staff, every bloody day to ensure that stuff happens. And I haven't lost, for whatever godforsaken reason, that desire to do that type of thing still today within this industry. Because, once again, bringing it back to a statement of a few moments ago, I'm honored that people are willing to come in Mm -hmm. and see us Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. engage with us in the shit that we do. It floors me. And so if you're gonna make that commitment, I'm gonna seize it and
0: take you on a bloody journey. <clears throat> um yeah, so my mind was like trying, I was like, where was I going with all that shit? So yes, it, it came back as you were sharing so much, so eloquently. Um what Michelangelo really loved about you is talk about fucking blue nun. You brought back blue nun. Talk about talk about blue nun. <laughs>
1: Well, you know, to – I don't know if it's serendipitous or just how old I am and the things I got to experience. Growing up in Ontario, the Liquor Control Board of Ontario, you know, still these – post-prohibition or prohibition era liquor laws, blah, 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 that I got to see and experience all of that shit. If you were to say, so Paul, you know, whether you like to say it or not, we presume that you are a Riesling fanatic and it is probably your favorite grape. Have you had, was there a Riesling that you had that turns you into this? No, there wasn't a Riesling that I had, but I am very familiar with Blue Nun because it's what I saw my parents and their friends and grandparents drinking back in the day. Mm-hmm. Sherry, I remember my grandparents having a glass of Harvey's Bristol cream on the rocks every goddamn day at 4 o'clock. So I am not unfamiliar with Sherry. And when you get to the history of that stuff, when Blue Nun was first introduced in 1921 um, by the Schmidt-Sona family um, and Peter C. Schall um, or the C. family, all of the history – of that wine in those days that it was the gateway drug not just the gateway Riesling but the gateway drug for many people into the world of wine in the right. 60s and 70s right. and early right. it was the world's biggest selling wine so as a Riesling person how can I not acknowledge that am I gonna piss upon that wine? no there is something important upon that wine so telling its story is important to me and to be honest Selling the goddamn wine was important too. So, we at various points in Terroir's life have had Blue Nun on the list, just as one of those lines in the sand that you might need to cross if we're going to have a full Riesling conversation. There is not a wine out there, MJ, that I am afraid of bringing into my goddamn joint because every wine has a story to tell. And what are we? I'm not a cork puller dude. I want to be a storyteller. Yeah. So as a storyteller, I need all of this shit in front of me to better
0: tell the story. I love I love that. I mean to your point. I remember the Harveys Bristol Cream commercials, Blue Nun, and you know the Rose all day. Let's take it back. That's why Matus is back now, right? Like like and and i i know i have you had the new matuse but i apparently it's a little bit drier i'm, I'm told i don't know i was
1: you know a gateway yeah. drug in the early it's yeah, the biggest exactly, selling right. wine of the 70s, right. and of then,
0: course and then i have told people this cuz i learned this when i first came into the business in the in the late 90s mid late 90s there's no california wine industry without white zinfandel <laughs> it's it just it's so i love when people we can be playful but we need to acknowledge these things you know what i mean Um, so I love that you bring blue nut back from time to time. Um, so, and yes, I, you, you're nailing it. I've been to terroir twice this week. (laughs) And, uh, just, just last night I stopped and had a glass of Riesling, uh, before I went home. Um, and I, I picked this up, man. Uh, you know, you, 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 uh, you're, you're not really labelable, which is awesome, but... Uh... Listen, dude, let's put it this way. If, we, if you are going to have
1: a glass of wine in front of you and then take a sip out of that glass of wine and you're not going to have a smile on your face... Something is fucking wrong. So, all of the shit that we do around the world of wine be it tattoos, stickers, buttons, the various promotions, the preaching the gospel love, blah, blah, blah is all in this effort to bring a smile to your face. Because this beverage that has been with humankind since we started walking upon this
0: goddamn planet Must be here for a reason goddamn right So I'm gonna give you guys the summer of Riesling safety tips Do not accept a wine by the glass if you suspect it has been subject to malolactic fermentation When entering a wine bar Always know where the riesling is located in case of fire or other emergencies. Like we, dude, you need to get one of those break glass and put a fucking bottle of riesling in it just for shits and giggles at your place. Okay, do not drink and drive or accept a ride for someone who claims that they don't like riesling. Do you have anything more dry for me? <laughs> and always carry enough money for another glass of riesling. <laughs> and in case of in case of emergency, remember floral notes expressive fruit and elegant structure like fuck man that's so that's like what wine should be right like you said it should be a smile on your face right like there's a million wine podcasts. uh we haven't said shit about bricks and destemming or any of that shit because i don't give i i love to know that stuff but go listen to one of those podcasts like i i want to talk about do you have anything more dry for me? Like these are well, I, I hate to repeat,
1: but I, I am not an original thinker in any stretch of the imagination. I think it was Robert Dentis, who you had on here a few episodes ago, who said that you know when he drinks a riesling, he is not fixated on the fact whether it came from red clay or blue slate exactly. or green slate. Yeah. That it's ha- it's the emotion, mm-hmm. and I will change that by saying. How does the wine make you feel? If you want a deep dive conversation, there are more scholarly psalms yep. in this city on this planet than me. Yep. Ultimately, MJ, what I want to know is, how does the wine make you fucking it's, feel, that's dude? The fucking bottom line, if you man. feel good, right. stop. Stop fucking talking right. and enjoy the goddamn wine. All of the book stuff, all of that stuff, I love those deep dives. And I'm thankful that there are so many people out there who want to yeah, do yeah. that. It's part of your journey too. Yeah. yeah. But if we're going to get overly analytical with this shit, it is just grape juice with alcohol, people of America. It's a
0: pit stop. Actually, I worked with this dude, Steve Green at Acker, and he, he said, he you know, he said, Wine is just a pit stop between grape juice and vinegar at the end of the day. I mean, molecularly that's what it is. And yes, I have wine knowledge, but I just I just like talking to people and go, oh my god, it's fucking delicious, you know? Maybe throwing a, a note apricot, oh my god, but it's never I'm not gonna have my nose in the glass the whole fucking time and blah, blah, blah. Um <laughs> So let's 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 talk about this um this, this, this grape that is so <sighs> misunderstood is what I'm going to say. What, what do you see? Why do you think Riesling has been so misunderstood? Because
1: the world of wine is so goddamn big. It's never been better, never been bigger than it is now. Oh, to be an aspiring wine drinker now, you have truly a world of grape juice in front of you. But that can be intimidating. So what do you then do? You try and compartmentalize things. You try and find these avenues where you're going to, f- where you know you're going to have success because it is still intimidating. Yeah. So if you've had a Riesling once that just happened to have some perceptible residual sugar, you are then allowed to take out that big broom from your closet and sweep the entire world of Riesling back into the thing and say, All Rieslings are sweet and never, ever touch them again because you believe somehow that wine with residual sugar perceptible is less
0: than. Right. And let me ask you a question. Um, I'm going to just pause you because I know you have so much more to say. Um, But I find even when you have like a Trochenbarren Auslase or even when you have a wine that was designed to be sweet, Riesling is so high acid, it's never cloying. Like, why do why do you think, like, what, and I guess you hit the nail on the head. You say, why do people think, like, sweeter wines are less than? At some point in our lives, we were
1: told, taught that sweet is inferior. Our palates begin our lives as gravitating towards sweeter stuff, and then we go to drier stuff. So, right. in the world of wine, if you're going to follow that same arc... Then, sweet is somehow inferior, and what whether we choose to acknowledge it or not mJA, a lot of us are guilty of allowing first impressions to count. We sure. do that every day when we meet someone, when we're in an experience and we ne- and we rarely right. or we should more often be willing to go beyond that so. Whether we believe in the map of the tongue or not, and the five things we taste, the first thing you encounter is sweet. Yeah. So if you are only going to allow first impressions, sweet, done, I'm out of here. And you never get that acid that you speak of. Yeah. You never feel that after the fact. You never use the B word, which is the most important fucking word. This is about balance. I have rarely met an individual who didn't love lemonade. Why do you love lemonade? The interplay of sweet and sour. So you fucking love that shit, but you're willing to tell me that that Riesling with a modicum of residual sugar and kick-ass fucking acidity is inferior? That is the fight, so to speak, that we enjoy having. On a daily basis at Terroir. (laughs) Because in being so confrontational, even not in the summer of Riesling, you're going to come to Terroir and have 20 to 30 Rieslings by the glass. And at some point, you're going to look at this stuff. You're going to get confused. You're going to get pissed off. And you're going to turn to your server or to me. And you're going to say, what the fuck? Why do you have so many goddamn Rieslings? And then we can have the conversation of – because that's all I want to do. Yeah. I want to converse with you. And if breaking through that, if unsettling you is going to open up a door to have the conversation of this grape and this wine, rock and fucking roll. And MJ, let's acknowledge that the vast majority of Rieslings produced on this planet are dry. Oh, yeah. And that's not just subjectively dry. that. That is objectively dry yet. That hack need belief that people have of this grape, this wine, being this singular style, utter bullshit. And that's what we're here to fight against.
0: Right on, man. Right on. Um, (laughs) So, in addition to being a restaurateur, um, you are uh, – you are prolific at expressing your opinion is what I would say. so if you go to the terroir website uh, there's a number of manifestos when did when and when and why did you get into writing manifestos
1: uh, i don't want to say that I'm a failed writer, and my wine list is the place where I get to exercise that <laughs> demon but I think once again, back to that Danny Meyer statement of a restaurant as a restaurateur, you get to do whatever you want. I seize that moment. And, and listen, at times in my career, it's come to bite me on the ass. And I put my staff in some very bad situations by beliefs that I have had and use my wine list to state those things. And I've risen and fallen between giving a shit, not giving a shit, and now I'm back to giving a shit. And especially after the past 18 months, I really don't give a goddamn shit. We are going to do what we do, say what we say, and I hopefully present things in not so adversarial a fashion as I do just putting it out there. Let's talk. Yeah. And the world of wine is everything to me. I see everything through this prism of wine or wine allows me to see into all of these different areas. So my restaurant, my wine list, I get to do whatever I want and I will talk about whatever I goddamn want.
0: And I hope, MJ, you're willing to come along for the ride yeah I was um, I read a few of them some that are actually I printed them out but then I forgot them but um, some that just are sort of stuck in my mind is like Kamala Harris deserves a glass of Riesling John Kerry deserves a glass of Riesling um, Mitch McConnell <laughs> was that one needs or deserves he needs yeah I think, I think, I think it was said, Mitch McConnell needs a glass of Riesling um, like like Is this just like you just sit down? Like you you said, like you're mixing – I could see like you're mixing your own views and you don't want to harm those who work for you. But like like the Mitch McConnell one, like I thought that was so good because I think it sparks conversation, right? Because I think on both sides of the political spectrum, no one wants to talk to each other anymore. And in that piece, you acknowledge that he had taken a step – you know, but then yeah, the the graphic of him superimposed on the Italian fresco. <laughs> what was that? It was the, uh, the, the, the the garden the, of naked something something something. It had to do yeah, with yeah, the yeah. Balance between good and evil. Right. yeah, right, yeah, yeah. Um, no, Stacey Abrams deserves a glass of riesling. Um, listen, we we uh, again,
1: I may take this stuff too far. I may make it so personal. Um. Uh, I've been doing it long enough to, I'm not going to say I've earned that right. I haven't earned anything, God damn it. But I will use the voice that I have been able to uh, attain and fight the good fight, say the things that I think should be said, and looking back to the very old days when the restaurant, the tavern, was the gathering place for everyone in the community to not just meet and greet, but to be informed about what's going on. Maybe, just maybe, I'm using my venue as a place for that. Yes, if you read everything I've written, there is a, an arc that mm-hmm. I've taken, a tone that I've taken. And uh, to all of those who I have offended, I apologize, um, but I don't care. No. I don't
0: care. Yeah, yeah. So, um, another great quote we we seem to f- we we found was uh, that your love affair with the Riesling grape has prevented me from going a few dates with California Chardonnay. Day. <laughs> so, talk explain that.
1: <laughs> Listen, I I will begin it by saying we've never stated. That Riesling is the greatest grape, greatest wine, and I have also never said that Chardonnay is the worst grape, worst wine. Um, I just paint with my broad brush segments of the wine industry that I don't think are getting, are doing justice to the grape, the land, um, and the people historically. So I am guilty. Of generalizing about a certain region's proclivity in a certain white grapes direction, and I wish they would change. But if it pay, if it made you pay attention, then I've accomplished my goal.
0: So, I mean, you said several times um, that you're not the person who's saying that Riesling is the greatest grape in the world. Um, so, like. Your wine list is like it's 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 like a a trapper keeper. It's like a binder, you know, it's 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 huge and it is very fun and interesting and you know, I go in there and I I just go give me a glass of alsace. What what do you like? I like I just know it's a place where you can go and just as a wine person, I can just ask your staff what, what what's tasting good right now. Um listen,
1: MJ, I'm in the hospitality business. But what I purposefully do upon your arrival and sitting down in my joint is to make you uncomfortable, <laughs> which has nothing to do with hospitality.
0: So let's just say I practice aggressive <laughs> hospitality. Did which, you come which, in? Which in the, in the beginning, to be aggressive is <laughs> like the word he hates the least. That's so ironic <laughs> that we're coming back around yeah, 70 well, minutes later.
1: to that. <laughs> well, well, listen, dude, you know, it's. I am purposefully making you uncomfortable. I am recognizing your expectations when you came in, but I want to agitate things. So when you open up our wine list, it is intimidating. It is fucked up in its appearance. It is wordy. It is overwrought. It is so many goddamn things when all you want is a glass of wine. goddamn it. Why doesn't this asshole just allow me to order a goddamn glass of wine? And I don't. But... That's where we come in and do our shit, which is recognizing your discomfort and recognizing that you have fallen below your expectations. So we need to bring you back up to that level and with education, a modicum of, with a chuckle, a joke, a piece of humor thrown in. We can then elevate you above those expectations. So when you do leave our humble little joint, MJ, you say to yourself, holy shit, I need to get myself back there. My ultimate place that I will open, no list. You sit down, you give me an idea of what you want to Enjoy tonight. And if you can't be specific with the wine, then I'm going to ask you your favorite band from the 1980s. Name me your favorite book. Name me your last meal. Give me some piece of information, MJ. And then I'm going to do my shit to bring you a glass of wine, a beverage that is going to make you feel different. That's what I ultimately want to do in my career.
0: that's, that's, That's fucking sick, man um so like how many wines do you have uh i'm not a numbers
1: guy dude you have no idea i leave it up to oh, people okay. with higher brain powers to count that shit. all
0: right so numbers aside <clears throat> moving away from riesling like what type of wines you drink on a personal bit. Like, if you're going for a red wine what what like do you have a go-to or is it all mood or is it all about the pairing well
1: i i did all the wines that i am able to taste and then buy for terroir have to meet the same criteria in no specific order okay they must be complex they must be balanced they must be delicate they must have a sense of place they must be able to live forever and they must be fucking yummy now those six criteria all sound great so let's dig a little deeper into what might be in the glass As you can hopefully tell a little bit, I love tension. Okay. So I want tension Mm -hmm. in my wine. Tension can come through the structure. So the acid, I'm an acid hound, is only exhibited through Riesling, of course. Um, I love balance. I love purity. I love sense of place. I love sense of fruit. And I love sense of human being, a human being smart enough to impose their will upon the wine. So, so, and that applies to the world of wine, dude. So it could be any wine from anywhere on the world. If it meets those criteria, you're coming through the goddamn doors of terroir.
0: Okay. 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 And, you know, because I said, I was there recently. And so like my wife, she likes, she likes bigger reds. And I was pleasantly surprised to see you have the Turley Juvenile there. Right. Um and when, you, and when you talk about, you know, I came up in the 90s, trolleys were, they were not, they didn't have as much tension like now they have under the direction of uh, Tegan, right? They were big and
1: bold yeah. and alcoholic yeah. and over the top and now they are about restraint. Yeah. So, again, we're going to generalize potentially about the world of Zinfandel sure. and say, Paul, how can you have one of those by the glass with all, you know, we thought you were recently. No. Have you tasted the fucking wine? Well, exactly.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean that wine has just got great acidity, you know, and zip, but it also has the heft and and, and the kick that she likes. She's like, you know. Um, Let's see. So, how did you get through last year, man? What was it like during the pandemic, the height of the pandemic? It sucked. How'd you guys keep the doors or the lights on? Doors open.
1: Uh, People of America, thank you much, very much for your tax dollars. We got the PPP loan, Um, and without that. Um, we would not have our, we would not have reopened. We shut down for 14 months, MJ, and it was awful. It was a roller coaster ride. And the only word I can use to describe it was flailing. And there is no worse way to run a business or I guess to, to go through life than feel like you're flailing on a daily basis. And that's what it was like for me. Last fall, Terroir was closing. I didn't see a way forward. You know, called the landlord, uh, giving up the keys, da-da-da-da-da, and for a variety of reasons, I eventually saw a way forward, and here we are today. Terroir's reopened for three months, but it was – listen, I'm not – I was – as any small business owner, I was in the same place as a shit ton of people, and I look at my peers out there, anyone who survived this thing, anyone who was open during the entirety of this thing, mm-hmm. I honor you, I'm envious of everything you have done, and I hope to God that I can find a way forward for the remainder of my 10-year lease to you know, then come into your joint, and thank you pr- for providing a roadmap to me, because... This shit ain't easier today. This is going, this is still hard and is going to be hard in our industry for, I think, the next six to 12 months.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, What was the reception of the community when you reopened?
1: Uh, We were blessed that they were thankful that we had found a way to survive. That I think what terroir does, and I'm the first one to admit, is there better food in New York City? 100%. Is there a better wine list in New York City? 100%. Is there a better looking place? Absolutely. Better service? Absolutely. But when it comes to hospitality, MJ, I think we, we will stand up against the uber hospitality practitioners. And I think that's what people relish about our joint, that some may focus upon the glass and what's in the glass. All I view this glass as... A vehicle of conversation. So you come in and enjoy a glass of Riesling or your wife enjoys his infandel, rock and fucking roll, dude. We get to talk. Mm-hmm. And I think most definitely after the pandemic, people didn't miss food or drink or service. They had those goddamn things during the pandemic. What they missed was hospitality. And as Danny taught us through his book, Setting the Table, what is Hospitality but a conversation. We missed conversations, personal, intimate, face-to-face conversations, and that's what we at Terroir work our asses off on a daily basis to have better conversations for when you come into our joint.
0: Okay, okay. I love that. I love that. So um, what would you... Like people are gonna listen to this 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 episode and they're gonna be cracking up and shit. Um, but like, what kind of takeaways can we give people? Like, um, give people like a Riesling primer, if you will.
1: A Riesling primer. Yeah, like like you know, can that just be just drink it? God damn it! Well, there you go. (laughs) <laughs> be be open minded that the world of Riesling all the different styles of white wine that you enjoy and relish and savor on a daily basis can be found in the world of Riesling. Stop painting any wine into a corner because this world of wine is broad. And richly fruited, so to speak. And any grape, any wine at any point in time can be your savior if you so
0: allow it to be. Awesome. Um, What's some of your favorite pairings with Riesling? So like we were there Saturday night and we we had Riesling with oysters. But what are some of your favorite pairings?
1: i am the, the days of being a psalm where i fixated sweated went to the gym to think about holy shit this dish this <laughs> wine what am i gonna do if i fuck it up i guess it's gonna hate my guts i don't give a shit more, because most people don't give a shit so I should answer your question, though. I'm going to have a cabinet Riesling from the Moselle River Valley with a bowl of frosted corn flakes. I think there is nothing oh, better wow. on the planet than that. Period. Amen.
0: Wow. That's a different one. Um, and I actually, I saw something uh, last week or maybe two weeks ago. Um, Talk about uh, you! Did, you did a night where you, didn't you donate like all the money to the R Valley? Yep. Yeah. Talk about that.
1: Well, we we love this industry and world that we exist in, and so many people need help in so many different parts of the planet, and certainly in the world of wine. And um, we should have done a lot more to help more of our peers in so many different parts of the world. But this one, for whatever reason, struck me. It was uh, Mother Nature slamming down upon Germany, specifically the R River Valley, um, two months of rain in one night, late at night, 1 a.m. in the morning on July 14th, Um, These people went to bed, and when they woke up, everything was gone. Over 100 people died in the R River Valley. Entire livelihoods wiped out by these people. Funnily enough, the vineyards are relatively fine, save Mm. for they need manpower now to keep working the goddamn vines. But what was a gentle stream, the R River became a raging goddamn biblical uh, monster and ripped away wineries, equipment, wine. And we felt for our, whether I refuse to acknowledge or not, our overt love of Germany and its most important grape that we had to step in. So yeah, sales from that Wednesday night all went to the our, our River Valley, the fundraiser that's going on. So $3,000 went in their direction. It's a little that we could do,
0: so we choose to do it. That's, that's awesome. Man. I mean, you really walk... You walk the walk of Paul (laughs) instead of the walk of life, the walk of Paul, right? Um, Oh, my God. As as I'm enjoying this bottle of wine, the Lentum, um, now, I love that you are so uh, passionate about just tasting it all. But we, we said we judge books by a cover. Do you have a favorite region? Is it Moselle, is it Falls? Do you have do you do you have a particular that you're or not favorite an affinity for? Well listen, I think back when you and I were beginning our wine careers,
1: you would read uh The World Atlas or some other books, and they'd say the most beautiful wine region in the world was South Africa. Yeah. And um I didn't know there was a competition, but okay. <laughs> and so I finally went there and I'm like, okay, so it's Beautiful, you know, Stellenbosch, uh, Table Mountain in the distance, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, nice. But when you go to the Mosel River Valley of Germany, and I'm going to call out my friends in Burgundy. I know how hard it is to be a farmer. I never want to be a goddamn farmer. For real. But people of America, valley floor, what's the maximum degree slope in Burgundy? 10. Okay, I'll give you 15 degrees. Come with me to the Mosel River Valley, to the town of Brem, to the Calmont Vineyard, where that vineyard is 65 degree slope. And we talk about terroir, forget its many meanings, but let's talk about soil. There's no fucking soil in Calmont. It is all crushed slate on top of solid slate. I defy you to go into that vineyard. With your cup of coffee and put your cup of coffee down and go about your day working on a vine. Your coffee will be gone in about a second (laughs) as it falls down the hillside. And you're going to roll down the hillside, fall quickly down the hillside into the Mosul River. So when I'm in the Mosul River Valley, I am staggered by the beauty of the place. I am staggered by the balance of those wines. I am staggered that the grape Riesling and the Riesling wine in Germany does not get anywhere near the respect it deserves specifically for the sheer amount of work required to grow grapes and make wine from there. If the Calmont vineyard existed in Burgundy a bottle of that goddamn wine would be into five figures. But because it's Germany, yeah. because it's Riesling, yeah. people don't give it the respect that it der- deserves. And it wholesales in the tens of dollars. It's on wineless for $70, $80, $90. Dollars. You look at that MJ saying, there's no fucking way I'm paying $90 dollars for a bottle of Riesling. Really? Really, Germany is just as exciting, just as profound a wine country as anything else on the planet. And wine lovers, so called wine lovers with Catholic tastes, need to stand up, go to the local goddamn wine store or restaurant. And start buying, demanding more German wine because the stories they can tell you, you have no clue. Not saying anything less about France or Italy or Spain or blah, blah, blah. But Germany needs
0: to be there too. Yeah. Yeah. And as you're sharing another question in mind. So what do you believe? I mean, what do you think about? like the Finger Lakes is an up and coming region for Riesling and they've been growing Riesling in Washington State for a while and I believe Washington State actually has more has the most Riesling vines planted outside of Germany, I, I read somewhere. Um, but when you, but like when I had Robert on, same thing, he said something Some you said, like like I know there's some really exciting new world expressions, but he's like, there's nothing like 65 degree terrace vineyards. That's coming out of rock, man. Like how do like how uh, so you have some on your list from like the Finger Lakes region. What do, what how do you feel I mean is, do all uh boats rise with the Riesling River? Is that is that what was far be it for me to disagree with the soil pimp.
1: <laughs> but it is the world of Riesling that excites me Got and hope Hopefully, I can see interesting stories to tell in each one of those places. So MJ, whether we're in New York State, Michigan, Idaho, Washington, Oregon, California, lest we forget the most popular white grape in California up through the 1950s was, say it with me, fucking Riesling, baby. Yeah.
0: Got ripped out. Yeah.
1: So Stony Hill Vineyards in Stony Napa Hill. Valley, they have Riesling vines that I believe Smith were planted. Madrone. In, yeah, like in the 40s and 50s, those yep. Rieslings were planted. Yep. So to say it's all young vine material, not true, people of America. So they are thrilling, but different I expressions of Riesling. I love that. And if it's a world of, right. why don't I want that? Yeah. I absolutely do. So... Be at New York State, five hour north of where we're uh, speaking today. They are relatively young in terms of the breadth of producers, but they are making some poignant wines right now. And I am thrilled by them to an extent as I am equally thrilled by Germany, Alsace, the old world shit that we speak of. And let's go to Australia. Oh, Holy yeah. Holy smogolies yeah. and then New Zealand. Let's go to my homeland of Canada for fuck's sakes. British Columbia, Ontario, yeah, the yeah, stuff yeah. that's being done. Yeah. It is a world of wrestling, and we want to
0: celebrate it all. No, wow. So um, as we're getting ready to wrap up, um, what what are you most excited about in the future? What what is what are you, what what's what's next for you? What's got you excited? What's got you jazzed?
1: Our industry coming to grips with this massive labor crisis and figuring out how we are going to move forward and take better care of our people. We need a lot of help. But unless our industry changes about how we do things internally, we will not have a bright future because no one's ever going to want to work with us. So to be honest, I'm I'm scared by that, but I'm also jonesed by that challenge of trying to figure out how we can be better practitioners of hospitality. The world of wine, you know, again, I'm a restaurateur first one. So world of wine, awesome. I am happy as shit I'm not a farmer, dude. I'd hate to be a farmer having to deal with all the various shit going on right now. And as tough as it is to be a restaurateur in this day and age, the fact that you are willing to come in and look me in the eye and smile and we can have a glass of wine and shoot the shit, I feel blessed in that way. Internally though, behind those scenes, we've got a lot of work to do so every single member of my team can feel comfortable to look at you in the eye, smile, shake your hand and shoot the shit and have some
0: fun. Awesome. Awesome. Oh my God. Thank you so much, Paul. My pleasure. Um, Tell people where they can find you, how they can be a part of what you're doing, your website. You can find me stuff.
1: at uh, Terroir in the Tribeca region of New York City. I will be the individual sitting in the corner wearing a cape and a hood and uh, probably smoking a clove cigarette and drinking a bottle of Riesling. Just please come say hello. My mother doesn't even call me anymore. goddammit. <laughs>
0: Yeah, make sure you go to uh is, uh, is it Wine is terroir's website? Is it, oh yeah, we yeah. have a website too. Yeah, yeah, you're yeah, you're yeah. the social media expert, I'm not. Yeah, yeah go to WineisTerroir.com dot com and see the crap that we've Yeah, had. get on the email list. Uh yeah. he'll email you and you can follow Terroir NY on Instagram. But um uh, my dude, oh fuck, I I'll just come to the restaurant, we'll hang out and talk. But you are welcome back here anytime. Thank you very much. Everybody, um we hit we checked off all the boxes again you know, we talk about cheers to the Mavericks, the philosophers, and the deep thinkers, and to all the wine drinkers. So Sam JSA peace. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you learned something. You had some fun while you were here. Please subscribe to the podcast and give us a five-star review on whatever platform you're listening to. And if you want to be an insider and get special content, make sure you go over to blackwineguy.com and get on our email list.